0: Y'all, I'm so pumped to preach the word at these two evening gatherings. The very words that we were just singing were inspired by the story that we're going to read tonight. I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. That's Daniel 3, y'all. And this is going to be heavy. There's going to be a lot to this sermon that I believe is going to immediately apply to your life. For some of you, this will be a new vision to what life is all about in general, and I can't wait to see what God does, but it's felt that way every week so far of this series. So if you haven't been with us, we've been tracking through the book of Daniel, and Daniel is a book in the Old Testament of your Bible that tells the story of the people of God taken into exile in Babylon, but when they're exiled, they're Their homes are destroyed, they're taken away to a new land, they're given new names, they're basically brainwashed into a new culture, but there's these four guys that are so transformed by the word of God from the inside out that they don't conform to the world that's around them, and what we're saying right now is what does it look like to look into how they got formed to that point, we're talking about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Because I believe that what God wants from Auburn Community Church in our day is to be formed so deeply into the image of who Jesus is that no matter how much the culture around us compromises and no matter how much the church culture around us compromises, we'll stand strong and worship him. This is deep truth that we're talking about here, but the whole idea of this series came from paying attention to, wait a second, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are from the tribe of Judah The timeline of Israel's history shows that when their parents were around, there was a king named Josiah who led a revival. He led a return to the word of God where what was passed down to Daniel and his friends was a version of being faithful to God that looked like no compromise, I am formed by the word of God. And if you're going to make it as a Christian in the culture that you live in, you need that type of formation. You don't need a youth retreat. You don't need a college retreat, even though we're having one in a couple of months, and it's going to be powerful. Actually, aren't y'all talking about King Josiah destroying the idols? Let's go! It's the Holy Spirit, Gage. Um, You need something deep to be able to make it in the world that you're living in right now. And so we're looking at the stories that fill the book of Daniel and going, how does this transform our lives in the here and now and from the beginning of this series i've been looking forward to this week we're going to get into daniel 3 in just one second let me give you a title the title of this sermon is called the fear the fear and as you're writing that down look at someone next to you and say don't be scared don't be scared no need to be afraid okay i want to give a little context to what we're going to see in the scriptures too many times when we preach about fear or talk about fear in our community groups we talk about it as if it is the enemy I understand that because we live in a day and age where anxiety and depression and so many mental issues are on the rise. And so it seems like the idea of being afraid is the thing that you need to do away with and overcome and move on with your life. But here's the problem. I believe more than fear is something that just needs to be done away with. Fear can actually become the ultimate backdrop for courage to rise in your life and your faith to become real. If there's nothing to be afraid of, there's never any need for courage. And if there's never a doubt, then faith doesn't stand out. And so if you're here tonight and going, the goal is to get rid of all fear, perfect love, cast out fear, doesn't the Bible say 365 times some variation of fear not or do not be afraid? Yes, you're right. But the context of the Bible talking about fear is not a context that ignores its existence. It's a context that acknowledges that it's real and overcomes it with a faith that's even greater. That's what you're going to see in Daniel chapter 3, but more than I want you to read about it in an amazing story, I want to see it in your life. Some of you have very real circumstances of uncertainty that are barreling down on you right now, and tonight's going to apply to you. Some of you have things going on that if we could tell the story from this stage, everyone in this room would be in tears knowing what you've been through or what you're walking through currently. But if you have any semblance of fear that has paralyzed you, maybe even just in your own mind, I believe the scriptures are going to speak to you tonight, and we're going to reframe fear as the thing to actually step into instead of the thing that we just need to run away from. If you brought your Bible to church, let's hold it up, 5 p.m., hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. Ooh, I love it, I love it. Hold it up even higher if you're so grateful for the athletic programs of Auburn University right now. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Here's what I love. It's not just basketball, guys. Everything's school. Everything. Well, how about our gymnastics team? Come on, Friday night. Man, Alabama fans. When it rains, it pours, doesn't it? You're like, it never rains for us. Now you know, and no one feels bad for you at all. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 1, Daniel and his friends are exiled, and they stay true to God by holding on to the dietary restrictions of the law instead of eating the food and drinking the wine of the Babylonians, and God honors that and gives them a position of authority. Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he doesn't just want it interpreted. He wants someone to tell him what his dream was. No one knows it, so he says, fine, kill all of my wise men. Here's the problem with that. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're all wise men in Babylon. And so their lives are on the line. They beg God for mercy. God comes through, shows Daniel the dream, shows Daniel the interpretation. And not only are their lives spared, but now they're given even a higher position of authority in the kingdom of Babylon. But then Daniel three happens. And this is the biggest challenge that Daniel and his friends have met yet. Daniel chapter three, verse one. If you're there, say I'm there. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Why would he do that? Because in Daniel chapter 2, he had a dream that symbolized different kingdoms. And the symbol for his kingdom was gold. He was the head of gold. 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now, if you don't know what a cubit is, like me, it's a good thing you have a footnote in your Bible that tells you this is a statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide of gold. Crazy. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Now when you're picturing this statue in this image, a lot of people will say it's a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. I think that's incorrect. This is a statue attributed to the Babylonian gods, but no doubt it symbolizes the power and the kingdom of Babylon as an object of worship. down to verse four. So everyone comes, they're standing before this statue, and then this happens. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language. You want to circle that phrase. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I want you to notice the details of that decree. The statue is built, and the idea is when the music plays, you worship. But the instruction is for all nations and people from every language. The reason why Daniel includes that is because Daniel is building toward a climax in Daniel chapter 7 where all nations and people of every, peoples of every language are gathered around the throne of the Son of Man as that being the end of the story of humanity, worshiping Jesus himself. So you got the kingdom of Babylon going neck and neck with the kingdom of God all throughout the book of Daniel. And this is a moment where worship is being demanded for the kingdom of Babylon. Go to verse 8. At this time... But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. It says that some of the wise men, the astrologers, denounce the Jews. That word denounce is a strong word. It literally means to wish death upon. There's hatred present. Why don't they like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I believe wherever the people of God walk in holiness, it is a sweet aroma in the throne room of God, but it is a stench to those who would rather stay in darkness. You start following Jesus in a radical way in your life, don't be surprised if the aroma of your life isn't well-liked by everyone around you. Their holiness has started to bother these people, but I want you to notice the astrologers only bring up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this has caused a lot of questions about the book of Daniel to rise up because people are like, um, where's Daniel? Like, he's the one who's kind of leading the charge, and he's the one who's writing this story. Did Daniel sell out and bow to the image of gold? Based on what you read in the book of Daniel, I would argue absolutely not. A few chapters later, Daniel's going to get the opportunity to compromise to the power of a king. Another kingdom's going to take over, and they make a rule that, You can only pray to that king and not to God. And Daniel will literally go to his room and open the windows and face Jerusalem and pray to his God. Daniel's not afraid of a fight or a lion's den, by the way. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But Daniel's name is not mentioned. Now, it's possible that because he was in a higher up position than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he could have been out of town or stationed in a different spot. But I believe that Daniel had a position of so much favor with Nebuchadnezzar because he interpreted his dream that the wise men are literally scared to bring up Daniel's name. I think they're scared to throw his name in because they know Nebuchadnezzar's gonna be like, "Uh uh-uh, don't care what God he bows down to. I need that guy in case I have another dream to interpret my dream. Nevertheless, they bring up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And notice this, the threat is if they don't bow down, they're supposed to be thrown into a blazing furnace. Many Jews died when the exile happened in blazing furnaces in Babylon. You can look this up historically. This is not that out of the ordinary But now Nebuchadnezzar knows about it. Go to verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? A couple things to notice about this. Just the fact that Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance is evidence of the favor that they found in his eyes. He's not just telling them, well, kill them. Do away with them. They're just Jews who we brought in from, from far away. Like, we, that's not going to cost us anything. No, he goes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is this right if you're, we got the music ready right now. If you're ready to bow down, let's just not worry about what those guys said, and you're ready to, to come with our gods and do our thing, good. We'll just make this all go away. But if you're not, you're going immediately to the fiery furnace. Now, here's why this is such a big deal. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being asked to do is blatantly against the teachings of their God, Yahweh. So in Daniel 1, they got the opportunity to compromise through some dietary laws. Jews have a very strict way of going about what they should eat and shouldn't eat. And those laws matter in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy as well. You can read all about them. But the laws that matter the most in the Jewish mind are the Ten Commandments. And the first two of the Ten Commandments are, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no idols. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow to this statue, it's more than just bow. Who cares what they think? It keeps your life. Say I'm sorry to God later. No, no, no. This would be a totally turning your back on your God. And the context, by the way, of the first two 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall, no, you shall have no idols. I grew up reading those two commandments, and I was like, well, God, why'd you say the same thing twice? Maybe they're just that important. God wasn't saying the same thing twice. An idol is a man-made image. That you have the opportunity to worship other gods are real spiritual beings little g gods that you can ascribe your life and actually give over worship from your life to. so this is going to bother some of you so bad but the economy of god's kingdom does not just exist between god and human beings there are other powers principalities that exist in our world And you can call them powers of darkness, Paul calls them principalities, you can call them demons, angels and demons, but the reality is God has given freedom and autonomy, not just for human beings to make decisions and be alive, but for spiritual beings to exist in our world. You're going to read more about this later in the book of Daniel, when you find out that there's actually a system of authority among spiritual powers of darkness. So when God said, you shall have no other gods, little g before me, he's not talking about totem poles and images He's talking about what some of those images are ascribed to, which are very real spiritual powers. You're like, Miles, are you saying that our God is not the only God? Depends on what you mean by that. There is one God, big G. There is no God like him, and there is no God but him. He's in total control. He's sovereign. He's different. And he names himself Yahweh. I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. That's in the book of Exodus. But there are other powers out there that are competing for the worship of Yahweh and leading underneath the charge of their ultimate leader, Lucifer, and we can talk more about that in another day. I'm only painting this picture for you because this is bigger than bowing before an image. This is compromising and selling yourself out to another God and turning your back on the God that you were raised to follow and give allegiance toward. This is the ultimate moment and it's, if you bow down, you keep your life. If you don't bow down, you die. What are you going to do? And in the ultimate call out, in Daniel chapter 3, here's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. Look at it. I love, I love God's attention to detail. It's Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. That literally means his face was turned. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. That's as hot as it can possibly get. And and, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I want to stop right there. If that is where this story ended, God would still be good. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, our God is able to deliver us, we don't need to defend ourselves, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow before your gods. They make it known that they're not just willing to go into the fire because they expect to be delivered, they're willing to go into the fire even if it means they die. And so they're tossed in, and the soldiers that toss them in are killed just by getting close to the flames, how hot the furnace is at this point. And then look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of Any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's go. The ultimate story of deliverance. Can you believe it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the blazing furnace as hot as it can get. And when the king and his advisors look in, they don't see three men burning alive. They see four in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There's a lot of debate among scholars of who is this son of the gods? Is it just an angel? Is it the archangel Michael? Or is this Jesus pre-incarnate on earth? making an appearance in the Old Testament. And I want to tell you, I believe with every fiber in my being, this is Jesus himself coming down from his throne to join Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Now, the word angel that Nebuchadnezzar uses after the fact, don't think, oh, um, wings and a halo. The word angel in the Bible just means messenger. It means one who who carries a message from God. So don't let that throw you off and go, I guess it couldn't be Jesus. No, 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 no. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know anything about the one he's talking about. He just knows to call him. That must be a son of the gods. No, you're right, except you need to correct your language, King Nebuchadnezzar. It's son of God, period. Jesus is in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make it through, and they don't even smell like the fire they were in. Now, look up here. There are so many details that we could hit on from this story that would be so cool to talk about and apply to your life. But what I'm trying to teach us, especially as we look at the book of Daniel, is to not just read the Bible in passing and grab things that we want to see and details that we think mean something. Okay, you can't just pick apart scripture, take a verse from here and there, and then pick a one-liner that you like and go, that's how it applies to my life. The best way to study the scriptures is to search for what the author's intent was in writing it. And we can't always know that, and the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the scriptures. But in the book of Daniel, particularly, we're digging for the gold that's really there. Daniel wrote this chapter. Why did he tell us this story? So this week, I'm reading it, studying it not even thinking about the sermon from last week. And I'm reading, and I'm going, okay, there's a decree at the beginning. If you hear music, every tribe, every nation, every language, you hear music, you bow down to the statue. But wait, that sounds really similar to what he says at the end. Because at the end, he gives a new decree. And he says, I decree that anyone from any nation or language who says anything against their God be killed and their house is turned into piles of rubble. I'm like... That kind of begins and ends similarly. Hold on. Hold on. Wait a second. Is it? No, it can't be. Is it? It's a, it's a chiasm, y'all. He did it again. Another chiasm. And if you weren't at church last week, you're like, that guy's crazy. What is he talking about right now? We talked about chiasms for legitimately 25 minutes of the sermon last week, and it was awesome. You go back and check it out. But a chiasm is something, in the Old Testament of the Bible particularly, it's a Hebrew way of burying meaning in a literary structure. The way it works is you tell a story or you give a narrative in the form where the first detail matches a later detail and then the story you can kind of stack it up in points to where it's totally symmetrical. The creation account in the book of Genesis is a chiasm. We talked about that last week. If you want more on chiasms, the Bema Discipleship Podcast. That's B-E-M-A with Marty Solomon. It's phenomenal. And so many of you emailed or sent DMs in this week saying, chiasms, this has changed my life. This is amazing. Some of you are reading Leviticus and it's making sense for the first time because you're realizing, wait a second. This is written in a lot of chiasms. It's awesome. Actually, the book of Daniel, we're going to discover this later. The book of Daniel is one big chiasm with little chiasms like Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3 in it. So we got a super chiasm on our hands, and here we go, guys. I'm so, we've gone chiasm crazy at ACC, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Here's, here's the chiasm of Daniel chapter 3. If you're like, what are you talking about? Here's how it works. It begins with King Nebuchadnezzar's decree. It continues with the three guys getting accused and threatened. The midpoint is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's bold faith. They're vindicated by an absolute miracle that rescues them from said threats and accusations. And then it ends with a new decree. That's a perfectly symmetrical chiasm. Now, these things can get more confusing if they're longer because it doesn't have to be A, B, C, B, A. It could be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way back to A, and you're supposed to look for the midpoint. The idea is for the meaning to be buried in the middle. So when you discover, look up here, when you discover that Daniel 3 is a chiasm, where are you supposed to look to know what Daniel is trying to tell you? Right in the middle. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's bold faith that we're supposed to have a magnifying glass and go, what are we supposed to see? From their response. So let's go there. Daniel 3:16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I love that it doesn't tell you who said it. It's like all three of them already agreed to what would be said in their defense. And their defense is we have no defense. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand regardless. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I love that they continue to honor King Nebuchadnezzar throughout it, because there's a level of submission that's healthy where they go, we'll submit to you as our king, but we will not submit when you call us to disobey our God. And what is said right here is something that we got to get focused on, but we can't just read it, y'all. We got to take ourselves into this moment. If you grew up in church, you know this story. You're like, three guys go into a fire, fourth one's there, protects them, they get out. No, 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 no. Take yourself into this moment. In our day, this is on a beach with ISIS holding machetes, threatening you going, do you still want to confess Jesus is Lord? Lord. That's how real and violent and scary this situation is. And their response is not, hey, we would really rather you not kill us. We just have to be true to our God. Let's unpack for King Nebuchadnezzar how important it is for us to worship our God and serve him only. No, no, no. Their response is, we have no response. We don't even need to defend ourselves before you. Y'all, don't just read your Bible and go, oh, that's nice. Read it and think about it dumbest response you could possibly say we don't need to defend ourselves before you yes you do this guy can kill you what is going on with you guys and so i want to take you into that particular line because there's a temptation to make shadrach meshach and abednego's faith this heroic moment that we're disconnected from we're like those guys just get it they're different like they got something that i don't have that they have this hero-like faith no 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 They don't have a hero-like faith disconnected from fear. They just have another fear that has overwhelmed a smaller one. Here's what I mean. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying we have no defense is revealing of something. It reveals that more than they are afraid of Nebuchadnezzar's threats if they disobey, they're more afraid of God's response if they obey King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see that? Their fear of God has overwhelmed their fear of man. It's no different than what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, which says, do not fear those who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill soul and body in hell. No one ever talks about Jesus saying that. He says, don't be afraid of people who can just kill you. Come on, I'm like, Jesus, that's, that's the number one thing. I'm afraid, like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, you should be afraid of the one who can take out not just your body, but your soul in hell. Who's that? That's not Satan. He can't do that. He does not have that authority. That's God the Father. Jesus, we're supposed to be afraid of God? Not in a sense that you get intimidated and run away, but in a sense that you are awestruck by who he is and your allegiance lies more with him than any authority that this world would call you to walk away from him. There's a fear of God that overwhelms the fear of man. And so, when the scriptures say 365 times, do not be afraid, that is not a commandment to just close your eyes and hope that fear goes away. That is a commandment into redirecting your fear in a direction that it can be overcome. You guys know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're scared. They don't want to die. If they are jumping into the fiery furnace going, we're ready to die, there's something wrong with them. Of course, they don't want to die. Of course they want to live. Of course they are human beings. But they've got a vision of God that has carried them into another dimension of faith. And the reason why I have to bring this up is because most of us in this room are waiting for our fears to subside before we take a bold step of faith. We're thinking, "I've got to, fear's got to be away from me before I become bold in my faith. If you wait for that to happen, you will be waiting to take a bold step of faith your entire life. Fear is never going to fully go away. Why? Because it's healthy. You know, God gave us fear as an impulse. It keeps us alive. It's intrinsic in our bodies. When a car goes past you, gets too close to you, adrenaline shoots into your brain because it's telling you that's not supposed to happen and you need to be afraid and it's preserving your life. When your knees get shaky, when you're at a great height or you've jumped out of an airplane and you're like suddenly freaking out right when you look down, that's your body's response in a healthy way to go. We're trying to help you survive. But fear is overcome when you come to understand it's not that fear is bad. It's that becoming dominated by my fear and letting it become a reason to not live by faith, that's the type of fear that must be dealt with and done away with. And I believe it's only dealt with and done away with when it's redirected in another direction. How how does that happen? Here's how. I was listening to us sing one of our favorite songs to sing. um, That's the power. Love that song. Love it. But there's a line in it that says, there's a hope that calls out courage in the furnace unafraid. It's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I was standing over there where I stand every gathering, singing, emotionally responding to God, just like I need to conjure up emotion in worship to remind myself what I believe. And if you're not there, I promise you it's not as weird as you think it is. You're emotional about every other thing that you care about. And the more you get to know God, I'm telling you, the more natural it will become to express yourself. But in that moment, I knew I was preaching on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a couple of weeks, and I was like, in the furnace, unafraid. Hmm. Where's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego unafraid? Now, I don't normally stand during worship songs and theologically debate if what we're singing is true. Uh, and if you do, we, want, we, wanna, we don't want you to go away, but... <laughs> stop. Um, <laughs> please, like you're not helping anybody, especially not yourself. And, and I have been there. I've, I've never shared this at one of our gatherings before. You guys know I was that crazy, critical college student who was theologically smarter than everyone and wasn't loving to anyone, like a lot of people in Auburn are. You want to know how disconnected I felt from the joy of who God was during that season? The reason why I preached so firmly against it is because I was like that, and it's miserable. It's awful. So I wasn't over there just like, Okay, I want to critique every word on the screen because I feel like being the Bible police. I was over there. I was over there just going, were they afraid? In the furnace unafraid? And then thinking about it, meditating on it, I was like, of course they were. They're human beings. But they weren't the only ones in the fire. There is one in the furnace unafraid. And it's not Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. It's Jesus. And Jesus' ability to be in the middle of things that freak us out, transcends our fear and becomes our faith. So in the furnace, unafraid is not, look how great Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. Aren't they awesome? It's look how amazing Jesus is to get us through fires that should destroy us. And his power and his strength becomes our strength. Look at him in the fire. Read this, Daniel chapter three, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. This is one of two moments in the Bible of its kind. The only other time in the scriptures I can think of where Jesus communicates this level of protection and affirmation over the actions of a human being is Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is about to be murdered. You ever ever read that story of Stephen preaching and being threatened by the Jews who are ready to literally stone him? And as they are killing him, he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That story has always stood out to me because when Jesus is at the right hand of God, there's a throne there. He sits at the right hand of God, never standing. But for Stephen, he stands. That's just I'm ready to receive you, Stephen. Well done. And I got a belief that Jesus in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't like to just interject things into the scriptures and go, okay, what did they talk about? What did they say? And read into things that are not actually there, but come on that level of affirmation and approval to come down in your fire and go, I'm with you, and there's nothing to be afraid of. Y'all, more than I am afraid of the worst thing that could happen to me in this life, I am afraid that I will live and die and never really see stories like this happen, and the Holy Spirit's available to me and available to you. So what I want to happen tonight is I want a vision of this moment to scare you from settling for anything less than bold faith for your life. Here's why. Simple principle, cover to cover through the scriptures. My whole message in three words. God loves faith. God loves faith. I had a seminary professor who put this on the screen one day, and he said, If you bet your ministry on anything, bet it on this. Cover to cover, God is moved by faith. Father Abraham, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. You want to know what your God loves the opportunity to do? He loves the opportunity to show up and prove who he is through people who are desperate and ready and willing for him to come through. God is so honored when you have faith in him. And I'm not talking about stupid faith. I'm not talking about jumping out of an airplane and going, God, I believe that you'll catch me and I'm not even going to wear a parachute. Okay, that's not faith. God's like, I gave you a brain to know better than to do that. The faith that I have in mind is not the faith to go, I'm just dreaming for five luxurious homes and all the cars that I want and all the money in the world. Listen, I do believe that God provides financially for us, but that version of more faith equals more stuff is anti-biblical and demonic. What God has in mind is you making room for him to meet you in the fire and some of you the tragedy of your life is that god would love to show off in and through your life he just has no space to do it there's no room like if we deleted everything in the bible that's true about the holy spirit tonight just theoretically speaking would that change anything about the way you go about your week this week Do you really need the supernatural power of God to live the way you're currently living right now? And by the way, this is just as convicting for me as it is for you to hear it coming out of my mouth right now. We don't have room for God to come and show off in the ways that he wants to show off. And I'm not saying God's gonna come miraculously save you from a fire, but I am saying tonight we're worshiping the same God that those guys were worshiping. They're not special because they're written about in the scriptures. They just had a level of fearing God and knowing that allegiance to him, regardless of the consequences, is worth losing everything for. And if we capture that level of faith, I cannot imagine what God will do in and through our lives. This is a version of Christianity that we need, y'all. When they're going to bed that night, think about the three of them going back to their rooms. What's that conversation like? Guys, that just happened. We were in a fire should have died what did he say to you did I hear that right like they are more alive and full of what it means to be in love than any other experience that sin can offer you and so we talk about fighting sin as Christians and I know some of y'all are disciplined and you're trying to get in the word and get in community groups and fight your desires and urges for sin and that's great but here's the thing maybe your sin looks so appealing to you because your relationship with God is so boring. Maybe if the journey of following Jesus was actually exhilarating and looked like what we read about in the scriptures, sin wouldn't look as tempting as it looks on the surface because you're going, this is awesome and it's hard, but he keeps coming through in ways that I can't even explain. This is what being a Christian is supposed to be like. Not easy, not walking around with a force field around you that keeps you from being harmed, no. But walking around with a boldness to your faith that says, I'm fully alive and I'm not settling for less than the life Jesus died and rose for me to live. I want this so bad. And I believe that for many of us, the reason why we don't have it is because the comfort of this life has led to real compromises. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is a testing moment because in Daniel 1, when they stayed true to God, they didn't have a lot to lose. They just got exiled. Their parents were murdered. Their lives were effectively over. So they obeyed God. But now, they got influence. They got authority. They got finances. They got stuff to lose. And now their lives are on the line. For some of you, the test of your faith is coming in a day where you could hold on to comfort and that leads you to compromise. And I'm trying to convince you, regardless of how old you are in this room, don't By the lie that that is where life is found. Life is found betting it all on Jesus, and life is found going deeper in your faith. So tomorrow, how do you live out this message? You're not going to have a fiery furnace and a king threatening to kill you. You might, but I'm guessing that's not what you're facing on Monday. How do I actually give you a way to live out what we're reading about? I got two questions that'll make it real for you. Is this helping anybody tonight? Okay, number one. Number one, here it is. What fear in my life is an opportunity for bold faith. What fear in my life is an opportunity for bold faith. So you don't need to look far to find the spot where you're called to have bold faith. You just need to look to what you're most afraid of. Look to your greatest struggle. As much as I hate it, we need difficulty and uncertainty and impossibility to call on God to come and show off the way that he does. And so what are you afraid of? What are you worried about? What are you struggling with? What is it about the future that holds you captive? Okay, find that place. Find that struggle. That's where God wants you to have bold faith. You don't have to go looking for trouble over in the Middle East so that you can act like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All you got to look to is what has you captive right now as an opportunity for bold faith. And when I think about in my life, the moments where I've seen God come through the most for me, it has been on the back end of me being totally freaked out about what will happen if he doesn't. Starting this church was one of them. Getting married, having a family was one of them. I'm telling you, the greatest challenges in your life will become the greatest opportunities for God to show off and the greatest opportunities for you to have bold faith. This week, I was uh, with some of our LDPs, that's our college interns, and just letting them ask me a bunch of questions. And one of the questions a um, senior girl asked, she said, I've got four really good options for what I could do after I graduate. How do I know which one is God. And if you're older in the room, you know the answer is that. The answer is you don't know, and you're not going to. Sorry to depress some of you who came here searching for that answer. The answer is you're not supposed to know. And I told her, I said, you you can do all the filters of searching for the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you should, looking to the Word of God, looking to the advice of mentors. And the Holy Spirit might quicken your heart to choose one option or the other. But regardless, when you go down a certain road you have been given an opportunity to watch God come through on your behalf because God gives enough clarity to take the next step but not enough certainty to eliminate faith. And if the word of God is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path, God will give you enough to take a step, but he won't give you headlights into the future to go, here's where you're headed, here's why, I know it's gonna be okay, calm down, breathe, Uh uh-uh. Because he knows your faith over time is grown When you come to understand he sees the whole story and where we are right now, even if it looks like a fire, we're going to get through it if he's in it with me. And I want to be so real. This is missing from every generation in our church right now. Now, There's like four or five different generations that attend ACC, but I want to split it into two groups. If you're 26 and older, you're in the older group. Congratulations. If you're younger than 26, you're in the younger group. I want to talk to our younger students, and tonight is predominantly you guys. I got asked a question this week, and as I was answering this one, I was like, that is what I need to say to our students. That is what needs to be said to college students. I was asked, what are you most encouraged by with 18 to 25-year-olds in your church, and what are you most discouraged by? And I was like, oh, that's such a good question. I'm the most encouraged by y'all's response to the mental health crisis. I've never seen a group of college students more kind and open and welcoming and loving because I know you guys are tired of the people around you and the friends that you knew taking their own lives. You're tired of people being lonely. There is almost no clickiness in this church. Do y'all know how rare that is for a church with thousands of college students? Every college ministry that you go to, it gets accused of, oh, they're so clicky, oh, they're so clicky. Not here. Not here. You don't know what I see when I look around our church? People who always have room for one more. I mean, you guys are absolutely dominating at your response to watching what's happening in loneliness and depression and anxiety, and I'm so proud of you, I love it. But there was a second question. What are you the most discouraged by? So as much as I just complimented you, this is gonna hurt. I see very, very little bold faith among our college students. I see a very flaky, semi-committal commitment to Jesus in case another better or more compelling option comes up on the road that you're walking on. Which is weird because for our generation and for a lot of Christians older than you, there was a moment that we decided to follow Jesus, and you're gonna think this is crazy, but it wasn't perfect, but we, we actually decided to follow Jesus. Like I surrender all, we, we like surrendered all. And not to say that it was perfect, but it was like, my old life's gone, and my new life's here. A lot of college Christians now, it's not a surrendering of all. It's like, yeah, I like Jesus, but you know, I want to see if something else comes up. It's kind of like what you do when you get invited to something. It's like, hey, we're going to do dinner on Friday night. Are you coming? And you're like, ah, I don't know. I'll let you know by Friday around 3. Why do you do that? Because you're going, well, if something else comes up between now and then, I want to create space for that. But then even if nothing else comes up, I might not be feeling it by the time I get there. I know you guys do this. You're that non-committal, You're that flaky. Just being real. You don't know what the sad thing is. You do that with Jesus. You go, I'm, oh yeah, I'm 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 in, all all in with Jesus. But there's a part of your heart that's so compromised. Like you literally, you've been a Christian for years, and that's never once affected the people you follow on social media. That's never once transcended the rhythms that you live with on a daily basis. It's never. And I'm not, I'm just calling you out on that because. The version of bold faith that I'm talking about is one that is fully surrendered to Jesus. And you're not going to understand the type of faith I'm preaching into unless you get to the place of full surrender. Now for the older generation, I believe the call out for you is on your comfort zone. Because the older you get, the more tempting it is to hold on to comfort and hold on to stuff. And the more blessing God pours out, the less hungry we become for more of God and the more we want to conserve. And I felt that this week we were fasting on Wednesday and I was like and I love the spiritual results of fasting but I you all know, I really don't like fasting cuz I'm Italian and I just live hungry like I feel like the incredible hulk is about anger like I don't get angry I am angry I don't get hungry I just am like all the time and so my stomach's growling and I felt the lord being like gosh it's been so long since you were that hungry during the week for my presence why I was so hungry for God when we were searching for a venue to have church the next Sunday. But now, thousands of people coming, new building being built, locations being started. People are going, oh, it's so cool what God's doing at ACC. I'll tell you the effect that that's had on my soul. It's made me sort of pull back and conserve and go, yeah, I can get up there and and preach a sermon that's true to the word of God. But God's going, you're not out there with me the way you were then. What would it look like for you if even if God blessed you for you to live in such a way where it's always bet on Jesus? It's always all in the middle. It's always all for him. And no matter how much God prospers you in this life, for you to not fall for the lie that it's for you and to stay surrendered. That was way too long on point number one. Number two is gonna be faster. Number two is this. Okay, we got what fear in my life is an opportunity for bold faith. Number two, what fire in my life is an opportunity for friendship with Jesus. What fire in my life is an opportunity for friendship with Jesus. When I say fire, that could mean a lot in the Bible. It could mean judgment. It could mean direction, fire by night. It could mean blessing. It could mean a lot of different things. When we talk about Daniel in the fiery furnace, we're talking about the place that you have to go that you don't want to. We live in a broken, sinful world. Death is real. Sin is real. There will be fires in life. And when the fire comes, it's a place that you're going, God, the last thing I want to do is go in there. But you're going in. It's that cancer diagnosis. It's that divorce. It's that breakup. It's that uncertainty. It's that, God, if there's any way around this, I just and God's going, there's no way around this. It's here. And with everything in you, you just want to push back on a sovereign God and go, no, God, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And when he finally shows you we're going in, going in the fire. It is the most painful place to be, but it's also the greatest opportunity to experience a friendship and intimacy with Jesus. I'm telling you, the things God shows you when you're going through impossibilities far outweigh any time in your life where everything's going right. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were on this stage and I decided to ask them the dumb question, hey, when did God speak to you the most? What do you think they would say? They're going, are you, do you not read the? In the fire. We were in a fire with Jesus. Yes, that's the moment where his voice was most clear. Yes, that's where I knew him most deeply. It's the last place they wanted to go. But it's the first place they would think of of how God moved. It's exactly what God has done in this church through so many different families. And when I was getting ready to end this sermon and I thought about today's date and what it means to our church, I just thought, I can't believe God orchestrated it for this message to be given in this moment. Some of you weren't here, but a lot of you were a year ago tomorrow. Sunday, January 31st, 2021, was a day that marked our church forever. 21 days of prayer and fasting had just ended. It was the first time we ever did that. And we had a guest speaker here that morning, Pastor Brad Jones from Passion City in Atlanta. And he gave a message called what is eternal life now that morning there was a dad in our church who was parking cars He was a high school teacher a coach a friend father of three boys and a husband his name was mike power and mike sat right where you're sitting right now that morning and i remember brad preaching that message and asking a question about Texas A&M because he went to Texas A&M. Well, Mike Power went to Texas A&M. And so they started having a little conversation at the first gathering of the day. That afternoon, Mike Power was with Jesus. Totally unexpected, totally out of nowhere, rocked his family to the core. And we come back that night for our evening gatherings. And I just remember being at that house reading his notes from the sermon that morning that said, what is eternal life? Looking into the eyes of his widow and going, we have no idea what people are walking into this room with, but we also have no idea what people are walking out and going to have to face after this. Changed me, marked me forever, but then leaving their house, praying over them and coming here and watching Brad. If some of you were here, you remember this. He started walking through the aisles And in a a two-and-a-half-hour gathering, thousands of people encountered Jesus, people just falling out of their chairs on their knees. It was like something you read about or hear stories about. Why did that happen? Because the fire became the place where what was hazy and unclear became so clear. You are in an eternal story, and all that matters is how you respond to Jesus. And the people who have been ignoring that for a long time could no longer ignore it because they were sitting in a seat where a guy was who is now in the presence of Jesus. And so tonight, I just wanna call you. If God's bringing you through the fire, you need to know that's an opportunity to experience Jesus. But if you're not in the fire right now, I promise you, you're going through it. You're going to die and spend eternity somewhere. Why would you not spend your life in bold faith on a God who offers his Holy Spirit to you right here and right now? Band's gonna come up here. We got a song to sing, but I wanna set up this moment for some of you to end the era of your life where you are non committal to Jesus. And I just want to put in front of you the options you have for your life and go, don't waste it on less than bold faith. Let's stand up all over this room. Don't get distracted because people are gonna be coming to Jesus for the very first time. Would you bow your head, close your eyes all over this space? If you're here tonight, And you would say, Miles, I am ready to give my life to Jesus. I don't want to waste this. I've been on the fence, but it is my time to say yes. I believe he died. I believe he rose. I believe my sins have been paid for. And I believe that I don't want to settle for less than following him for the rest of my life. If that's you, I want you to pray a simple prayer. I want you to pray, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. You'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. Father, I pray that among us there are people who are saying yes to you for the first time, but most of us have said yes, and we're settling. God, we're compromising. God, we're scared, and we're not seeing you move in the powerful ways that you promise in your word. God, I pray that full surrender would happen in this space in response to the fiery furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would rise up all over Auburn, Alabama and would say yes to the fullness of your calling on their lives. God, don't let us go back and settle for less than what you have. Let us say yes, because your power is available today. We don't have to wait till tomorrow. You're available here and now. We sing to you. We lift our eyes to you. We give everything to you tonight in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing. Come on, church.